beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes to get us to where he wants us to end up, God sends us in what appears to be the, the opposite direction. Now, scientists do this when they're trying to control spacecraft hurtling through space. They sometimes spend this, send the spacecraft in the wrong direction, and there's a reason for that, because they use the gravity of the planets in what they call gravity-assist trajectories or slingshotting, and so if they want to get ahead that way, but they need to pick up speed, they'll send the spacecraft this way first, it'll come around the planet and use the planet's gravity to pick up momentum and velocity and then be slung shot off into space. And sometimes God does that with our lives. He sends us in a direction which seems to be against the flow. We think we, we should be going that way, and the Lord sends us the other way. But he's got a reason for it. He's doing something. He's working through the situation. And this is what happens in Genesis 20. Genesis 20 happens after God has given a number of times the promise to Abraham of a land and a people and the future birth of the Savior, the Messiah. You remember back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 21, uh, the Lord told Abraham to circumcise his household as a mark of the covenant. And then in 1721, he promised the birth of Isaac. He said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So back in Genesis 17, the Lord said, next year, this time, 12 months' time, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And then in chapter 18, verse 14, when the Lord comes again to visit with Abraham very shortly afterwards, and they discuss the judgment of Sodom, before that judgment of Sodom, the Lord reaffirms the promise of the birth of Isaac. That's chapter 18, verse 14, where he says, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. It's less than a year now. And Sarah shall have a son. And then suddenly we get the account of the destruction of Sodom right after that. Between the, the promises of Isaac's birth and his actual birth, there's this chapter about the destruction of Sodom and the cities of the plain. That's chapter 19. And there's a contrast here, because if God uses affliction, tribulation, and, and troubles to, 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 in the end, slingshot Abraham in the trajectory of the promise, with Lot, we see that the afflictions and the troubles cause him to crash and burn. Lot gets too close to the world, and he ends up in shame living in a cave like the dead live in the tombs, and born from incest to his daughters are those who will become Moabites and Ammonites in the future, enemies, historic enemies of the people of God. So there's a contrast there. And those that group of people that left Haran many years ago is now diminished. Lot has fallen aside and Abraham journeys away. That's the first verse of our text. Abraham leaves the area. He heads southeast, southeast towards what today is the Gaza Strip, that kind of area of the Gaza Strip, and a little bit south and east of that. Or sorry, he heads southwest. 
So to his southeast, where he is up there in, in the area of memory and, 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 and Hebron, to his southeast is what, what used to be a fertile plain like the garden of the Lord. It was a fertile plain bustling with rich trade cities, and now it's a smoking wasteland at the bottom area of the Dead Sea. Now, why would Abraham leave? The Bible doesn't tell us why he leaves. Perhaps he's in search of better pasture or more water. Perhaps the locals know his connection with Lot and have heard from the survivors of the, the little city to which Lot fled what happened. And maybe people are looking askance at Abraham and, and fearing him. We don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, we do know that he is a sojourner, that he is a wanderer. And he has to travel around the promised land without really putting down a lot of roots. Now think about what Abraham is facing here as he leaves the area of Hebron and he moves southwest towards the area of Gaza. He spent so much time and energy saving those kings and those cities and those people of the cities of the plain. He pursued those other kings all the way up north and, and destroyed them and brought back the captives. And now what was it all for? Because all those people he saved have literally gone up in smoke and the cities have been destroyed and all the possessions as well. There's a lesson here, brothers and sisters. It's good for us as God's people to be concerned about the material and physical well-being of our neighbors. And it's good to do things to serve those who are afflicted and suffering. But that's not the main goal of the church. If the church gets caught up in merely a social gospel which ministers to people's physical needs, that's not going to help in the long term. That's not going to save them in the day of judgment. And in the church's evaluation of the world around us, it is far better that people would spend time on this earth, in this life, under suffering, that would drive them to come to know the Lord Jesus so that they would live forever, than that they would live in luxury and abundance here, that they would gain the whole world and lose their soul. And so as Christians, that affects the way we decide about how to use our resources and how to minister to our neighbors. So Abraham journeys southwest, and he comes to that region of Jera. He sojourned in Jera, and the, and the verb sojourn is a, a verb of temporary living. Abraham's living in tents. He's moving around. He's a sojourner in the land which belongs to him and his descendants, but he can't enjoy it yet as his possession. And because he's a foreigner, because he's an outsider in, the, in, the, in his own land, he comes up with what he did in Egypt as well. He comes up with a, a subterfuge, a little plan to kind of protect himself against problems. He says of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, he explains later to Abimelech that she is the daughter of uh, his, his father, but um, not the daughter of his mother. Now, 
we won't go into all the details, but it could be that she's a cousin as well, because father can sometimes refer to your, your, your father or your grandfather. So it could be a cousin of his, or it could be a half-sister. Now, in this time, we're closer to Eden, we're closer to paradise than we are today in 2021. Human beings, ever since the fall, their DNA has been breaking down. With every generation, there are more corruptions in the genetic code of humans. And so we're not evolving, we're devolving. It's getting worse. There are more and more genetic problems in the DNA of the human race. But this is at the very beginning, closer to paradise. There hasn't been as much breakdown and genetic mutations that are bad. And so there's not as much danger of near relatives marrying one another as there is today. Of course, you see that also in the longer lifespans of the patriarchs. They're still, the, they're still living, in a sense, on the fumes of paradise. There's still some power of that eternal life that was given up just a short time before by Adam and Eve. Why would Abram say she is my sister? Well, because in the ancient world, the brother had a very, very important role as the protector of the sister. And, and everybody understood that. If somebody wanted Sarah, they would have to go through Abraham as the purported brother. And so that he would be treated well for her sake and he would have a chance to say no to any suitors that might come. But it doesn't work because in the very next line we see in our text, Abimelech, king of Jerah, sent and took Sarah. He just took her. Now, a lot of unbelieving scholars, they look at this story and they say, wait a minute, we see a very similar story back in Egypt, when Abraham said to Pharaoh, she is my sister, and, and this, is a, this is just a repetition of the same story. Uh, editors got confused, and they just kind of used the same story again. But we understand the Bible to be the Word of God, and we understand that this is all inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the story here is about 25 years after Egypt, and it's a very, very different in its details. There's no reason to believe that this is just a, a repetition of something in the past. Abimelech sent and took Sarah. Well, why would he do that? She's 75 years old. Why would he be interested in this 75-year-old woman in his harem? Well, Sarah will die at 127. So in those days, people were living longer. In terms of proportions, how much of her life she has lived, she would be, to us, today, what would be like a woman in her 50s. So it's not necessarily impossible that she still maintains her beauty and her attractiveness as a woman. But there's also the point that Abraham is a very rich man. And as king, Abimelech could find it interesting to have a treaty with Abraham and to be connected by marriage to have an alliance. And so he takes her into his harem. But there's a problem. It was a problem back in Egypt, but it's a greater problem now because things have become more clear. Since Egypt, there's been more revelations since 25 years ago. And now Abraham knows something that he didn't know back in Egypt. He knows that the promised son must come through Sarah. And he knows, this is, this is just a few months after the promise in Genesis 17. He knows that 
in about nine months' time, Isaac will be born from Sarah. It's around the time of Isaac's conception here. And it's exactly at this time that the enemy moves Abimelech to take the mother of the church into his harem. You see what's happening here. The devil is working to put into question your salvation. The devil is working to put into question the paternity of the son of the promise. Because exactly around the time that Isaac is conceived, Sarah is in the harem of a godless king. A king who is worldly and does not belong to the people of promise. And so there's something big going on here. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this line from Genesis 3.15, the promise of the, the Savior and that line sometimes is very, very thin, and sometimes it's, it's, it seems that it's going to be cut and it's going to be broken. And every time God steps in at just the last minute and works a great salvation, he does the same thing in our chapter. The minute Abimelech takes the mother of the church into his harem, God shows up in Abimelech's dream and says, you're a dead man. God is taking this very seriously. There's a problem here. This cannot be. It must be clear that Isaac is the son of the promise from Abraham and Sarah, and so Sarah cannot stay in the harem, and it, can, it must be made very, very clear that Abimelech has no chance to father a child with her. And so the, the, the Holy Spirit makes that clear in verse 4 and throughout the chapter. Now Abimelech had not approached her. And he says to the Lord, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, now, why would he say that? God said to him, you are a dead man. He says, why would you kill an innocent people? Abimelech understands something we don't understand as modern Canadians in the 21st century. Abimelech understands communal guilt. We live in a society and a culture which is highly individualistic. But that's not the way the world has been made. That's not the way the world functions. The world functions in this way, that our sin does not just affect us, but it affects others. It affects people with whom we have relationships. We hear that in the, the law every Sunday, that God visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And as modern individualists, that kind of grates against us. We think it's just me and the universe. That's not the way the world works. When we sin, our sin does not just affect us. It affects those that we're responsible for. It affects those that we're related to, that we're in relationships with. Especially when we're in a position of leadership, in a family, or in a country, our sin affects those that are under our responsibility. Now, Bill like knows this. He knows that judgment upon him will be judgment upon his people. And he pleads as a good leader, not just for himself, but for his people. And he appeals to God with the facts. He says, did he himself not say that she is my sister? In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. This is an unbeliever coming to God, the holy God, and saying to God, I have integrity in my heart. I have innocence in my hands. 
How is this going to work out for him? Is this going to be, is this going to be accepted by the Lord? Well, it is. And that's kind of surprising. Look at, look at what the Lord says in verse 6. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. The Lord acknowledges that Abimelech has not purposefully set out to commit adultery with the wife of another man. This was not just sin amongst the people of God, but all the ancient peoples and the ancient law codes of the surrounding nations, adultery was seen as a terrible offense. And it was dealt with very seriously. It was, the penalty was death. And God recognizes that he was not purposefully setting out to commit that crime and that sin. Then God tells him why he didn't fall into the sin. He says, I myself kept you from sinning against me. Now, God didn't keep him from sinning against God in the first place for Abimelech. God kept him from sinning in order to preserve the people of God, the line of the promise. He kept Abimelech from sinning against Sarah and against God for you, for the sake of your salvation. Because the sin would not just be against Abraham. The sin would not just be against Sarah. But the sin would be an attack on the very plan of God to save the church and to bring about the birth of the Savior of the world. There's a lot at stake here. So God says, verse 7, he's a prophet asking to pray for you and you will live. There's no Bible at this time. There's not a New Testament. There's not even an Old Testament. And so God speaks to people. God reveals himself to people directly through dreams and through other means. And Abraham is someone who walks with God and with whom God speaks. And Abraham can also not just hear what God says, but Abraham can speak to God. He can intercede. He enters he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And God heard him, and God interacted with him. And now God says to Abimelech, ask him to intercede for you. Because if you don't, if you don't clear up this situation, you shall surely die and all who are yours. There's the communal guilt again. Now it seems that God's judgment is already pressing down on Abimelech and his household. A little bit later in the chapter, we read that he's sick. And so when God comes to him and says, you're surely going to die, he's probably at this point already feeling sick. And that could be one of the things that God used to prevent him from seeking out Sarah to be with her as a husband with a wife. He's just absolutely feeling rotten and miserable, and that's a providence of God so that he would not touch her. Now look at how this unbeliever, this is a man who doesn't, he's not part of the people of God. Look how he reacts to the, the word of God. He rises early in the morning. He, wa he wants to get this dealt with. He is eager to listen to the word of God. Here we have someone outside of the church, outside of the people of God, teaching us how we should res respond. How often do we rise early and be uh, intent and eager to listen to the word of God. He calls his servants, tells them everything. They're afraid. They also have a certain fear of God. And then he calls Abraham. They're in verse 9. And he's upset because he realizes that he and his people are in danger of great destruction and judgment of God 
was something that they did not choose to do knowingly. And so he calls out Abraham, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Again, here, the child of God, the father of the church, the father of believers is being schooled in ethics by an unbeliever. What a shame. And again, this, this shows us how the word of God is not just a hagiography. It's not just a, a record of all the perfect things that the saints did and, and that they never did a thing wrong. The word of God is very honest with the mistakes and the sins and the failures of the great men and women of God throughout history. And because it's so honest about our mistakes, it shows that our only hope is in God's work. It's not in man at all. So what have you done to us, says Abimelech? That's very different here than in Egypt, right? Back in Egypt, Pharaoh wasn't really bothered. He was very cold. There was not much fear of God. He just said, fine, if that's your wife, then I don't want to suffer the consequences. Get out of here. That's basically what he does. Abimelech acts very differently. Abimelech seems to have some notion of God. He seems to have some notion of sin and of justice. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, what did you see? that you did this thing. What on earth was in your mind that you would make a decision to deceive me like this and put me and my people in danger? He is upset with Abraham, and rightly so. He's very, very upset. Then Abraham comes with his excuses. And Abraham, this is not one of his finer moments. And the scriptures show us that he is, like us, a sinner in need of a savior. The father of believers is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He comes with his excuses. Well, I thought there's no fear of God in this place. They will kill me. But the way Abimelech reacted to God's revelation in the vision, and the way his servants react, and, and, and his concern about avoiding the judgment of God and not doing wicked things with someone else's wife, that belies what Abraham is saying. Abimelech's being a lot more godly than Abraham would give him credit for when he said, well, there's no fear of God in this place. And then Abraham says, well, this is kind of our standard operating procedure. She is, in fact, my sister in some way. And she is a close relative, so I'm not lying. It may be a half-truth, but it's not a lie. And then he says something very interesting and rather shocking in verse 13. He says, when, now look, at, look carefully at verse 13. You won't be able to see it in the English, but, but it says in, in the Hebrew this way. And when the gods cause me to wonder. Now, we, we have in our translation God singular, and we just need to stop here and, and look into this a little further. In Hebrew, God is often referred to in his sovereign power over the whole world, over all the nations, as Elohim. That is his name of power and sovereign rule. The sing that's, a, that's a plural noun. The singular is El. So that word comes in, in names like Beth El, the house of God. And there's another word related to El, which is Eloha, which is the same thing. It's just a, a longer form. So Elohim is the plural. El or Eloha is God. Elohim is 
gods. But this plural noun is often used with respect to God himself. It's a plural noun, but we translate it as a singular because the verb is in the singular. So normally when the Bible speaks in Hebrew about Elohim does this or Elohim did that, the verb will be singular, the noun is plural. And so it is a plural of majesty. It's like when the queen is having tea with you and you do something foolish and she says, we are not amused. It's because she's the queen and she gets to talk like that. She uses the plural of majesty. And so Elohim is the plural of majesty. But here's the problem. When Abraham says in verse 13, when God calls me to wonder, he uses the verb in the plural. And, and commentators have scratched their heads over this for a long time and come up with all kinds of attempts at explanations. But it's there in the text. Our brother John Kelvin says, well, he's probably talking about the angels because Elohim can sometimes talk about great powers, uh, even human rulers in some rare cases in the Old Testament. He can talk about the, the mighty angels. And so Kelvin takes it that way, that the, that the angels uh, under God's providence were were causing him to wonder. I would suggest that Abraham here is showing, again, his weakness. He was trying to cover up the truth about who Sarah was to protect himself, and he's not quite ready or able to just tell the truth about God. But he's talking to Abimelech in terms that Abimelech understands in terms of Abimelech's worldview. In Abimelech's religion, in Abimelech's worldview, there are many gods. And so he, Abraham can't be bothered at this time to come to Abimelech in this situation and say, well, there's only one God, and he's the God that sent me here or that sent me wandering around. He uses the language of Abimelech, the gods. The gods cause me to wonder. Abraham has experienced God's protection. Abraham has talked with God face to face. But Abraham here in chapter 20 is using subterfuge to avoid problems, lying about his wife, and kind of using the language of paganism to talk about God with a pagan. These things are not things that fit with a life of faith. So Abraham doesn't come out very positively in this chapter. But thankfully, God is at work in all of this. It doesn't depend on Abraham. It depends on God. God moves Abimelech to repentance. God moves Abimelech to set right what has gone wrong. He gives in verse 14 a huge, massive payment, sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants, lots of riches. And so God uses, he slingshots this, this situation here. Everything was going wrong. But God uses this to make the king of the new people of God, the new humanity, more glorious. Abraham is the head of the church, the new humanity, and he grows richer and more powerful through this situation, despite his own weaknesses and sins. And then Abimelech says in verse 15, dwell where it pleases you. This is the promised land. It belongs to Abraham as his sins. They don't have it yet. But now Abimelech says, well, just take whichever part you want and live there. Put down your tents. And this is a, a foretaste of the future possession of the land. Abraham gets to experience in part 
what the people of God will experience in the full in the future. And we live in the same way. We live in this world. doesn't belong to us yet. But God has promised it to us. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. As sons and daughters of the living God, it all belongs to us. But we don't walk around claiming it right now because we're sojourners and wanderers. And the little bit that we have is a foretaste of the eternal possession which awaits us. And so Abraham's having that same experience with the land of promise. And then he makes a public payment in verse 16. He says, and look how he speaks here. He says, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He doesn't say I've given your husband. He says, I've given your brother. And you sense a little bit of irritation and frustration in Abimelech there. Well, you said he was your brother. And to this guy that you said you were, was your brother, I've given a, a, a price of money. It's about $10,000 worth of silver in today's money. It's a big amount. And he gives that as a public testimony, kind of a reverse bride price. Normally a, a groom would pay a price for the woman to be brought into his home to become his wife. And this is a reverse of, of that. It's a public testimony of her innocence and that he did not have any relationship with her. And so there's the promise of the land and there's the promise of people that God gave to Abraham when he established his covenant. And that promise included this promise that those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And right here, God applies that. Abimelech receives blessing because he treats Abraham right. He does the right thing by Abraham. And so Abraham, as a, a type of Christ, prays for him and intercedes, and God blesses Abimelech with healing. He blesses him with healing. He blesses his wife and concubines with healing. They weren't having children. They weren't conceiving. Now, for them to figure that out, this whole situation had to last more than a few days, right? It would have likely have lasted quite a few weeks or even months for it to become clear that not only was Abimelech very sick, that could be more evident very quickly, but for it to be clear that his wife and his concubines were not able to conceive. And so look at verse 18. Who is behind all of this? Who is sovereign over all of this? Here's the explanation. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, if you read through the chapter, this is the first time that we get the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Through the whole chapter, the Holy Spirit has used the name Elohim, God in his power and his sovereignty. But now in the very last verse, the Holy Spirit draws attention to God in his covenant-keeping character. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of salvation, he is the one who closed the wombs of Abimelech's house. And this is important. Abraham and Sarah were afraid. They were separated. There was the dynamic of Psalm 30 here. They're, they were humble under the judgment of God. They were apart. Uh, there was fear. There was anxiety. It's the time of the conception of the son of the promise and the mother of the churches and the harem of the ungodly king. And there was no way for Abraham to fix that. There was no way out. There was no way that he could make things right. 
everything seemed to be going the wrong way. And it's exactly through that that God is working. Abimelech is sick and dying. There's no new life in his house. And through sickness and through the threat of death and through the working of death in his wives and himself, God protects the line of the promise. What did God do here in chapter 20? He averts all evil and turns it to our benefit. And Abraham and Sarah, despite all of their failings and all their sins, they come out of this richer and more powerful and with a clear declaration that Isaac is their son. And they come out of this enjoying the use of the land of promise as a foretaste of future fulfillment. Things seem to be going terribly wrong, and God slingshotted it around and made it work for his glory and for the progress of his plan of salvation. And this, what happened here in chapter 20, makes all the difference for us in 2021. It's because God did this, that Jesus was born, suffered and died, rose again, and paid for our sins. Now, what is going the wrong way in your life? Or in our life as a church, the church locally here or the church Catholic? A lot of stuff, a lot of trouble, a lot of affliction, a lot of things which seem to be going the wrong way. But chapter 20 of Genesis teaches us that God is sovereign. And we may bumble around and we may make mistakes and sometimes we may fail to live out of faith and we try to fix things our way and they go catastrophically wrong. It's a total fail. But the scripture comes to us this morning, the Holy Spirit teaches us this morning again that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God who keeps his promises, the God who saves his people, the God who turns our mourning into dancing. And as he preserved the line for the birth of the Savior by sending sickness and judgment and death into the house of Abimelech, so today he preserves his church and advances his kingdom even in the midst and indeed often through the means of terrible judgments poured out upon this earth. We're looking at an ancient text this morning, but it has a very powerfully present significance. All the chaos, all the sickness, all the conflict, all the upheaval of the last 18 months is the work of God. God is doing something. God is pushing things forward to the final end. And that final end is life. Life in abundance. Life in Christ. The life which never ends. That's the gospel. And if we fix our eyes on him. And if we fix our eyes on what he is doing. Then even if it seems that everything's going the wrong way. We may know we may trust and we may be sure that all will be well. Amen.